Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And, and this, this is Storymakers Show. And we are super excited to be here today with Irving Ruan. Um, and he is a writer, comedian, actor, playwright, and engineer. I love that. Like, one of these things is not like the others, but maybe. Well, maybe not. Uh, as a child of Chinese parents, Irving and his family first immigrated from China to Montana and settled down in, in San Diego during the second half of his childhood. Now you're in your third half, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Isn't that what it is? Isn't it like... <laughs> okay. Uh, he later went on to study computer engineering at UCSD and eventually landed in Silicon Valley, where he has worked as a software engineer, startup founder, consultant, and now as a writer and comedian. His work has been published in The New, York in the New Yorker, McSweeney's Quarterly Concern, McSweeney's Internet Tendency, Funny or Die, College Humor, and elsewhere. He has also studied improv and sketch writing at the Second City in Chicago and is currently a member of the San Francisco Writers Grotto, which is where we met. So welcome. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. I'm so happy you are here. So we start with what we're working on, and um, we will be brief because... Um, we're, we, we recorded an episode today already. <laughs> Primarily, I'm working on cover letters for your film <laughs> submissions. And I actually, actually, though, I, we did an episode at the crack of dawn this morning. And since then, I had a whole huge revelation. I'm cutting stuff out of my novel and simplifying it. And um, it's really fun. So um, terrifying and fun. Yeah. Like a, yeah. So anyway, what are you working on? Yeah, so I have a few projects going on right now. One of them is just working on a few humor pieces. You know, that's definitely my bread and butter right now. But um, one of my larger projects I'm working on is a uh, play. Um, it's basically comedic slash drama and uh, still wrapping it up, but, you know, really excited about where this is going. It takes place at a hotel, so I don't want to give too much away, but uh, really excited about this particular project. Very Excellent. fun. Very fun. Yeah. No, no. Just... I was, I was, someone was talking about the, the laughing and crying, and I forget the language of it, but it was like, it's, such, it's the sweet spot. It's definitely like where Angie writes from. The thing that you, know, you said, like dr dramatic and, and comedic at the same time. That's like, there's just a sweet spot there. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, actually, I uh, was reading through some of your pieces, like one after another. <laughs> and so I read In Succession, uh, you know, GPS for Adulthood, I think was the one title. Mm -hmm. um, the Airbnb. For Airbnb my, for my your brain. brain. <laughs> and um, there's definitely the, like a thematic. Like you definitely have a collection forming, of, right? Of these, like. Well, the thing that actually struck me, um, and the other one was Google Translate for Asian parents. <laughs> and um, mm -hmm. and the the thing that really struck me actually that all of these things have in common is they have two very clear simple things that you would not think to put together. So I wanted to ask you about your process. How do you do your bread and butter when you approach it and that sort of thing? Yeah, first of all, I'm very uh, flattered and that you that you read a lot of those. And yeah, I mean, it's definitely one of those things where I didn't realize it until recently where I was developing this kind of structure. And I think for me, where I begin is usually trying to, exactly what you said, I try to identify really clear noticeable patterns I think many people will recognize in the case of like the GPS directions and adulthood I mean these are all very familiar modern themes and what I realized was that one of the I guess and maybe this is like a secret and comedy mm -hmm. that I certainly discovered is that combining two different universes is one way to get really great 
premises mm -hmm. together. And it's so simple and so obvious. And I thought maybe, oh, like this is something that nobody knows about. But I think a lot of people know about it. I just never realized I stumbled onto it. So it's definitely been very helpful for me to start from those pairs. And then often down, oftentimes I will whittle it down maybe not just to two, but just the one singular one that might help clarify. But yeah, I find it to be a really good starting point in kind of combining different things together. Are you like kind of consciously brainstorming different things and then seeing like, well, what if I pair this with that? Uh, I wish I was as structured as that, to be honest. I mean, there are a lot of comedy writers I know who can just sit down at a desk and, you know, crank out different headlines or whatever. I can't really do that. I usually think of these things if I'm walking out the street or getting coffee or something, and I don't know where these come from, but mm -hmm. uh, sometimes they just appear. So, is it fancy coffee that you're on your way to? Because <laughs> <laughs> don't waste yeah, your yeah. money on on you know Folgers is good enough. So right, <laughs> right, right. No, I I try to keep it fancy every now and then, you know, a non-fat vanilla latte. Uh, in jokes, I get it. In jokes. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> And how about how is is that similar in any way to um, the other forms like playwriting that you work in? Yeah, I mean, I think with those types of things, um, it's a bit more uh, less focused on those particular things. I think for humor pieces, it's much easier to just kind of develop two noticeable themes and just collide them together. Whereas, like I'm sure you guys are probably picked up from novel writing, you know, it's not just as simple as you know two or three different things and then just let's see what happens when you combine them. So yeah, I think my process with like even writing my stand-up set or with plays or other things, it's all, I try to capture a theme, like a general feeling, and then I just write about it. Um, so it, it's harder for me, is what I'll say in those areas. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, tell me about the first time you did stand-up comedy in public. Yeah, the first time was earlier this year. So I started out writing first, and then stand-up just was one of those things where I've always wanted to do. So I, the first time I did it was this year in Chicago, um, and it was uh, it was a very interesting experience. I don't know if you guys ever been to an open mic, but you'll show up and you have a list of, of names, mm -hmm. and you'll sign up, and I think I was the 18th person to go. <laughs> and... <laughs> And by the time that I went up, it was like 10, 30, 11, it was already getting pretty late, and most people who had already gone up had left. Mm. So by the time I showed up, there's four people at the bar. So I was performing <laughs> to four people. Uh, that was very disheartening, and uh, definitely not what I was expecting, but overall it was very fun, I'm glad I did it, and a few people laughed, so that was... Out of four. Few, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a few out of four is like seventy-five percent. Totally, totally. So that was uh, that was pretty cool. But yeah, it was a really good exposure to understanding. You know, just you just got to do it, right? Mm, um, that's what I hear. And then and then have you continued to do stand up at all? Yeah, definitely. So I've been doing it throughout this year. Um, not so much recently, just been, just because I've been busy with other projects. But yeah, it was definitely something I was maintaining on like a consistent basis, and it was very fun. Um, very different from writing, obviously. But you know, I always found that stand up starts at the heart of writing. It, you have to have really solid like just sentences and get to the joke, um, and that has helped in many ways I didn't expect with just traditional humor writing, right? So like writing pieces for McSweeney's or The New Yorker, like it's very different from stand-up, but trying to become very bare bones with my stand-up set has informed much of my process for like writing other traditional humor pieces. So do you feel like there's a, you know, because I think with stand-up you have a window where people have to laugh pretty quickly and pretty regularly. 
And so I'm wondering, you know, what is the cadence of a written humor piece for something that you were in? Like in New York. Like a, yeah, like a Shouts and Murmurs or something like that. What do you, you know, how long can we go before we laugh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I have always tried to shorten that time horizon as much as possible in terms of for both sets, but I find personally that it's much harder to do, for me at least, in stand-up to shorten that. Um, mm. Maybe it's just me, but my preference in stand-up is I want to tell more of a story, mm. right? So oftentimes it comes from a personal place, and I think those stories tend to require a bit more build-up. Whereas I think with humor pieces, um, because they're so, at least for the ones I've written, they're so surreal and out of the ordinary, they're not really emulating a real-life story, I can get to the joke really fast. And mm -hmm. that I find much easier to do, where stand-up, I have to tell a bit more context, um, which for me is a bit harder because I have such a such a appetite, if you will, to get to the joke as fast as possible, and I find that that might be you know, too soon in stand-up. Do you think that the, taking that time, though, makes your punchline more punchy? I think so. The punchline's good. And that's, that's, that's the trick, right? If you take 30 or 45 seconds to get to a punchline and it's not that good, it's like, oh, uh, what a waste of time, right? And <laughs> Can so I that, have that so minute the, back? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The stakes are much higher, um, which makes it much scarier, too. Okay, so this question might sound like a premise for one of your humor pieces, but how has um, your engineering background informed your, your writing and comedy? Yeah, sometimes I wish I could really utilize that computer science degree for comedy, but uh, I, I, I think the thing that I found is that I always start, I think, you know, from first principles with uh, a lot of things I tackle. So in engineering, one of the things that I was taught was, you know, you start from the basics, right? The foundations of whatever field and then you kind of build up from there. Um, I think this can be said with many disciplines, but what I found really interesting about comedy when I first started doing it was, um, I think there's so much temptation to just try to write the best thing ever, but what I kept in mind was, what are the basic atomic principles to comedy? Well, there's like the rule of three, right? So you start with one, two, and then you end with a third funny thing. Um, another principle I started picking up was always end, or at least try to end with the funniest bit last, right? So very similar to, you know, set up on punchline, right? Um, that there are certain words in comedy that naturally sound funnier. So like words that have the letter K, yes. like caca or chicken or cow, these words just naturally sound funnier for some reason. I don't know why. And, you know, like these are kind of these basic principles. And I started taking those principles and trying to incorporate that into my pieces and say like, do I have those basic ingredients? Have I laid down the groundwork? And if I can have that, then I'll start editing and flushing out like the details and everything. But if I don't have those basic principles, I won't have, I think, a funny piece. In the same way like with computer engineering, if I don't have like a concise algorithm or if I don't have a well laid out architecture for the application I'm building, it's not gonna pay off in the long run. So those are kind of the similarities that I've- It'll eat your memory about. in the long run. <laughs> yes, that is true, that is true. Um, I have learned that the hard way, yes. <laughs> I love that, so, so do, are you doing in engineering now at all or? Yeah, so I consult on the side and one of those things uh, that allows me to do is I basically, my day job is basically writing code. And so I still get to practice much of that on the side, which is really cool. But yeah, it, oftentimes when I get into comedy mode or I get into engineering mode, it's a very different part of my brain that I have to kind of bounce back and forth. Yeah, yeah. 
I like that. I like those principles, though. I, I always want, <laughs> yeah. I want rules. I like rules. And then yeah. how, how did you get into playwriting? Yeah, I, this is one of those things where I never expected to write plays, but I started out before I got into uh, stand-up writing sketches. Right, so you know, um, you know, two three minute sketch shorts, and uh, that comes from kind of my improv background. But I figured, okay, if I want to write a funny play, in a way, it's kind of just like a really one long sketch, um, <laughs> or ten sketches, or, basically. <laughs> yeah, and that's what makes it so much more difficult. But as I started learning throughout, kind of writing plays and so forth, is that um, I think audiences are expecting that drama aspect, right? Which is what I was mentioning earlier. And I think what made it very difficult for me to pick up playwriting was um, I first and foremost considered myself a joke writer. So again, there was that temptation to always write a joke after a joke in a play, but I think that can be a bit too overbearing for an audience. So I wanted to kind of cut that down and say, how can I inject more of a dramatic feel to it where there is you know, a deeper meaning behind it. And that was kind of a lot of the feedback I was getting from, from people was like, there's a lot of great jokes, but there's not so much of a strong, like what makes this worth watching or, you know, what makes this worth understanding, right? As a part, you know, aside from the jokes. Mm. Um, and so that was a good lesson for me to learn in terms of, okay, going up to, you know, on a stand up set, the expectation is for me to make them laugh. But I think, with other forms of theater or arts, you don't always have to make people laugh. And that was hard for me to kind of, you, <laughs> you know. know Rembrandt had a lot of struggles in the beginning of his career because he would kept going, look at the light, look what I can do. And people were like, yeah. what, what? And he's like, oh, okay, let me just tone that down. Right. So, yeah. So. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> have you done, um, wor- have you workshopped it where you have re- actors uh, read the different parts and that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, I've done a few table reads, and that's always, I think, a super helpful thing, right? Because I think, you know, especially with the humor pieces that I've written that are not, like, to be performed, it's kind of existing in my own brain, in my own universe, and that, I think, can be fine, but when it comes to, like, plays or any sort of sketch, you got to get people to read them, so I always find that to be seriously really helpful, and also, um, this is just a personal thing I've learned, I when I send out my humor pieces to like friends who, you know, I ask for feedback, when they tell me something, something's funny, like I'll believe them. But when it comes to like a table read, like when I watch people's reactions, like that is very humbling, mm. right? When you write out a joke and you think, oh, this is gonna be funny, and then they read it and no one laughs, you're like, oh shoot. <laughs> I have to go back to the drawing board. So that, I found that really helpful. Yes. Do you ever feel like, well, well, the actor didn't say it the right way, like, well. <laughs> All the time, all the time. Well, I have a a quick question. So if you were to say, here's what a sketch workflow looks like, what does it look like? Yeah, are you, so just so I understand, are you asking like, how do I think about the skeleton of a sketch versus like other, other performance or? Mostly, I mean, you know, because you talked about how improv impacts your sketch writing. And so I, you know, was just wanting some more clarification about, okay, I'm going to write a sketch. What's the first thing I do? What's the next thing I do? Kind of what is that process? Or is it even consistent? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's fairly consistent for me and maybe my process is different from other sketch writers. But the way I approach it is I'll usually start off with 
an idea of some kind. Like I remember one of the first sketches I wrote was Dracula rents out his castle, uh, Transylvania on Airbnb. Mm -hmm. Um, so like, it was like, again, it was like one of those simple things like we mentioned earlier, just taking two different universes and colliding together and sort of starting with that kernel of truth, knowing that there's something there and then just trusting that the writing will figure itself out is what I'll usually do. And I find that has been very helpful where I'll just start out with an idea and I'll just write out the dialogue, not knowing where it's going to go. Um, to me, uh, and I don't know how alone I stand on this, that's just more fun of the writing mm -hmm. process. Mm -hmm. I hardly ever plan things out. Um, I don't know if you guys do the same with your guys' writing. I plan a boatload, but... Um, but you came to that slowly. I came to resistance. that slowly and painfully. But, you know, so my, that actually was... Part of my question is then, how do you know you're done? <sighs> I guess I really don't. I mean, another, yeah, good point. I mean, I think I think it was Oscar Wilde who said that art is never finished. It's only abandoned. Yes. And, yeah, and I feel that's how I always feel after every single thing I've ever written. It's like it never feels done. And I think many artists can say that. Mm -hmm. um, so I never don't. I never know. I think I think what usually helps is – there have been many pieces in which I've really struggled to find that killer punchline, where it's taking me some pieces. I remember one of my New Yorker pieces I wrote took me about like three months to find that punchline. I was like, I, this is not good because I don't have it. And once it finally hit me, it really clarified the rest of the piece. Whereas like with other humor pieces I've written, I'll get to the punchline my first draft. Mm. But all of the other jokes and everything, not that strong. So I'll leave the punchline and I'll just keep on refining. So. Yeah, it's, I don't know, it's it's really hard to answer. <laughs> and it sounds like, so like for, for, we, for what you were saying, some of that, like, refining or, like, getting or thinking about what, what is that punchline going to be comes more, um, what, diffuse mode is what Angie was yes. like, as opposed, you're not sitting there and focusing, like, what could it be, what could it be, you're just, like, walking around, and but it's in the back of your mind, is that kind of what happens? Absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. And you're like, oh, that... Yeah, and when it does arrive, and if it takes weeks or months, it's like it was worth it to think about it, you know? Uh -huh. like, yeah, it was frustrating, but yeah, those moments are really, just to me at least, very magical. It's like, oh, finally, you know? Like, it took you long enough, Irving. <laughs> Do you think, too, like, um, you know, as, you, as you've been publishing, and I, I want to circle back to this a little bit because you said this great thing, like, this is my bread and butter, like, publishing these, these short humor pieces, which is such a great bread and butter, right? I mean, there's like, that's, you know, anyway, <laughs> but, uh, so, but, um, uh, so I'm like, now I sidetracked my own self. So, um, oh, I know there's this thing about like, um, knowing that something could be a piece, you know, like you're thinking something or you say something kind of funny to a friend or whatever or you're, or you just have this weird, like, what if idea, or, or, you know, and then and then kind of making that next leap of like, wait, this could be something I write about. This could be something I develop, which I think that has to be developed like that, that instinct. You know, I, I mean, I always I think of it like for some reason in terms of, you know, like futons, like how they just so need handles. Like when you when you're like young and you're moving futons all over like San Francisco, <laughs> you're like why don't they have handles on them? And, right. Right. And there's certain things like that where I've been like, you know, what would be really smart is this thing. And then like, lo and behold, someone's like marketing it and making millions of dollars. But you like, it's that that like step. the rubber gasket around the keyhole in car doors. Okay. They didn't used to have those. They used to be metal, and then someone changed them to rubber. Now we don't have holes in cars anymore. <laughs> <Keys>. so. <laughs> but I actually met someone whose dad like invented that what, rubber why gasket. Is that amazing? Well, because you didn't think 
you needed that. But really what was happening is everything was getting scratched. Right. So the rubber actually prevented, you know, and I'm not saying the people driving were drunk, but um, sometimes when it's dark and you're maybe a little more relaxed, you kind of jab your key at the door hole and the rubber kept it from going off and scratching up your car. Okay. So millions so, saved there. Right, right. I, I, I did not know that. Uh <laughs> You might not now. It's just like, <laughs> it might be completely invented, but this is educational slash fictional podcast yeah. learning. But anyway, to circle back to like, so just how, how did how did you how have you kind of like kind of taught yourself to grab hold of something? Do you write it down? Do you you know how how does that happen? Yeah, um, yeah. I think so. I think a lot of writers tend to do this, but uh, you know, I always whenever an idea comes, I always write it down. So I have like a general note taking app. And that really helps. So that usually just gets out of my brain. I don't have to worry about it. But I think to your first question, this yeah has been a very elusive thing for me. And the one thing that I always relied on, so a quick tangent. So I started really writing comedy last year. So again, like I'm barely new to this, but the process I've used personally is I trust my body, which is a very weird thing to say. Like if I encounter a phrase or a thought and I notice that it provokes a physical reaction, like something I feel, then I know there's probably something there. And most of my really great ideas that I've had, which have been few, to m- mind you, um, have always come from a physical reaction, um, which, again, I understand is a, probably a weird thing. So, like, right. as an that example, my, yeah, and I don't know if you guys have this, but, like, one of my – so one of my favorite humor writers I first started reading last year was this guy named Colin Nissan, and he's uh, written a lot of really funny pieces that's gone viral on The New Yorker, but a lot of his pieces – don't have like that weird title. It's a very innocent phrase. So like one of my favorite pieces that he wrote is called I work from home, <laughs> right? I don't know if you guys have read that. And no. there's like another one I think is called I miss you. Like very simple, right? But like these are common phrases that people say and yet he's able to take these really innocent phrases and just create these surreal universes. And that's so funny. Um, but I think it's like one of those things that have been early influences, like trusting on a common phrase and then just building upon that like creating these weird worlds um so yeah i think it's just trusting my physical reactions when i when i feel or see an idea Mm -hmm. i love that i mean especially since you're an actor and yeah and and actually it's it's a thing that um I actually, we encourage, we do a very linear process in part of our book in a year, but I often advocate that people, again, you should have that gut sense. Like you have to have that gut check because you can be as linear as you'd like, but if it isn't authentic, true to you, it's not going to work. And so, Mm -hmm. and and I love that, you know, calling it that body sense is um, important because I do think you have a physical reaction when your body recognizes something or when you're... Your brain probably sends a little endorphin hit that's like, congratulations! Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Um, so yeah, that's one of the things I, I found super helpful for me. That's great. And so then you submit your work because, you know, you're saying, oh, I've written very few, but but really you've published a lot, right? So, <laughs> so however that works. Um, so, so can you talk a little bit about kind of the business side of things, like submitting work and... Yeah, um... It's it's really uh, it's really <laughs> it, it's it can be really demoralizing as I'm sure you probably uh, already know to some extent. Um, I started submitting my work last year, 
speaker and I just remember I was getting rejected all the time. I mean, there's a certain point where I forgot after how many rejections, I was like, why am I even doing this? Mm. And I remember when I got my first acceptance, that was a really cool feeling. And I thought, all right, I'm gonna get accepted every time now. And that's just not the case. Um, so the way I've always approached it, and this is just maybe my own view, is I just thought it was the law of large numbers. If I just keep on writing a bunch of pieces, mm-hmm. you know, most of them are gonna get rejected, 95% of them, but hey, hopefully sometime 5% will make it through. And that was always kind of the principle I operated by, so I always tried to write a ton um, and just submit, and that's kind of what I keep on doing. So it's just being consistent with that practice and, and making sure like I keep on writing and producing. So. so important, and then so so, and if you get a rejection from one place, do you send it right off to the next, or do you use multiple? Or do you even it? wait? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I so for me, I definitely wait because it really. So at least the editors I work with on some of the humor publications, they're they have been super kind and offering you know really short constructive feedback on why this may not have worked, and I really try to internalize that to understand. Like, is this just uh, uh, a particular symptom of not aligning with the voice? Are the jokes not funny? Like, is it just not good enough? So I internalize that, and then I wonder, like, does this piece have some hope, or do I need to reconsider it? Um, there have been some pieces where I would get, you know, have them rejected, and I would completely redo them from scratch, mm. and then it would get accepted by another place, and that, to me, has been very helpful. Like, waiting to see, like, what's really what's going on with this. Yeah, use these editors as editors. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, um, totally. Um, I mean, the people that I think read a lot of these pieces, I mean, they've probably seen thousands, hundreds of thousands, right? So I definitely have to trust the judgment on that. Yeah. yeah, that's wonderful. Well, it is time for Steal This. T.S. Eliot said, amateur poets borrow, professional poets steal. And so we like to think each week about something that we've come across in our readings or wanderings that we would like to take and make our own. It's my mm. new definition of stealing. Mm. <laughs> the creative <laughs> definition. <Yes. laughs> um, Why don't you model? Okay, I'm going to model. So um, I am, I'm reading There, There by Tommy Orange. I'm just like two chapters in. So, But I have to say there's this – well, first of all, and this is true for classics and it's true for like books that are getting a lot of attention. Um, I have this resistance. Like whenever it's telling me, oh, this is really great, I think like it's going to taste like, you know, spinach – like a spinach smoothie or something, right? Like, is it really going to be great or is it just going to feel like I'm doing something really good for me? It's like a brockumentary. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't come up with that. That was at the Sebastopol Documentary Film Festival, Mm -hmm. and it's a great little festival, just saying. But um, anyway, but but, so of course then, and then this is true with a lot of classics as well, and it's true with there. Like, there's this whole pleasure. It's like, oh, people really like this because it's, pleasurable and not because it right. feels like it's good for you. Anyway, but he's so good at, at kind of voice and he's got, you know, I mean, like I'm already just two chapters in that's like two completely different characters, different voices and, um, and uh, you know, and especially because there, there are little tiny similarities between them, you know, which I do the sort of terrible Terry Gross, like I'm clocking that, like if that's, is there some, you know, bio, like hidden, hidden autobiographical thing there, but He's really also distinguished them. And um, so I just want to kind of use this book to think about voice and to think about um, what the pleasures of voice and the, and the ways that voices can be distinguished from one another. Yeah. There you go. That's my very crafty one. Yeah. You what about you, do? Irving? Do you have something? <laughs> He's batting. It can be anything, too. It can be very different. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I wish I had like a very particular example that just came to mind. I think the way I've always approached it is, yeah, I steal relentlessly. Uh, I am very, very shameless about that. Um, I think the thing that I have often used is like I'll read a lot of other people's uh, humor pieces throughout the week and I'll try to like make notes of what stuck out. Mm. I remember one thing that I, I want to use this somehow, but I just feel uh, it'd be too obvious. So Simon Rich, he's one of my favorite humor writers and he's, you know, he's written for Saturday Night Live and he's written a bunch of these humor books. Uh, he's really talented. I remember he wrote a piece for the New Yorker earlier this year about Thomas Edison, Edison Labs for Shouts and Murmurs. And I remember he used this one term, which really just, I don't know why it just sounds so funny, but it was so simple. He said, um, there's a guy who was a medical idiot, which I don't know why that just sounds funny, but it just sounds funny for some reason. It's like, got the K sound he, in it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> there you go. And so something about that just, I don't know, really stuck out at me. So I've been kind of using that as a baseline for what are some ways in which I can just take normal words, you know, like a water, but like phantom water or something, something that pairs those two together so that was a very helpful inspiration for me to see how can I steal those small phrases into my humor writing mm. I love that that's awesome yeah all right and <laughs> so <laughs> come to you ah, so what I've been doing a lot lately is <laughs> talk about actually like, to steal from that heist film nothing yet but um <laughs> how about from Ocean's 8 <laughs> anyway um <laughs> No, actually, what I've been looking at is I'm going to start a media club for my kids' school. So I was reviewing, and NPR has a contest coming up for schools, and I was reviewing for podcasts. For podcasts. Not for our podcast, because apparently we're over the 12-year-old <laughs> age limit. But, um, you know, one of the things they were talking about was a brainstorming process around story. And I realized that for myself, I did this for a little while, but the thing I actually want to bring back is sort of the intentional idea generation part of a day. Every single day doing some kind of idea generation. Because right now, you know, God, this idea is fantastic because it's the only one I have. <laughs> so going back to that place where I can feel uh, more empowered because I'm making more of an intentional effort to, to generate. I used to use newspaper headlines, and they are—they're not so funny anymore. Well, <laughs> <They're depressing>. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, Irving, how can people find your work? Come see you on stage. Uh, you know, follow you. Yeah. Um, so I guess I'm on this thing called Twitter. Uh, uh, so Twitter.com. You can just find me at, at Irving Ruan. So that's my full name. Um, I also have a website with some of my work up on there, so irvingruant.com. Um, but yeah, I think Twitter is a great way to kind of reach me. Sometimes I'll workshop jokes on there. Um, so yeah, that's a really great place oh to gosh, find me. That's awesome. Workshopping jokes on Twitter. You yeah, steal that. I, yeah, I might steal that. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have to there sign up first, but. <laughs> It might not be worth it. Twitter is definitely can be a black hole. So <laughs> all of it is, yes. But yeah. thank you so much. Yes. Definitely keep us posted. You know, as things evolve, it all sounds super exciting. Yeah, thank you so much, guys, for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you guys. It's been a real treat. <laughs> Likewise. Likewise. All right. Bye. Bye. All right. Take care. <laughs>